0: Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to Polygamer podcast episode number 65. Today I'm honored and thrilled to be speaking with a visiting professor from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, better known as MIT, that being Kishana Gray. Hello, Kishana.
1: Hello, how are you? Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to chat with you. I had the privilege of being in the audience for your presentation back on April 5th and was just delighted by everything I saw and heard and immediately approached you and said, would you like to come on Polygamer? And I'm so excited that you said yes.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This is great. I'm a I'm a fan of the podcast. You know, I've previewed some of your some of your shows, and it's amazing. And I'm glad to be on. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, you mentioned in your talk that you're a fan of Assassin's Creed, specifically the character of Atawale And I'm like, hey, I've had the voice actor, Tristan Delala, on my show.
1: Yeah. That was awesome. That was amazing. Like, like the that that the fact that you were able to like get him and like some of the other folks that you you've had. Like I'm really honored to really be one of the next guests on the show. So thanks so much.
0: And I'm honored. I just tweeted at Tristan. He said, "Hey, sure, let's do it. When do you want to talk?" And it was that easy. I'm.
1: Oh wow. I
0: know. I mean, when when people take the time to be friendly and engaging and open, especially on Twitter, where there are so many reasons not to be, it's really a privilege.
1: Exactly. You know, that, that's that's exactly right. You're exactly right. So I'm gonna start. I'm gonna I'm gonna get my courage up and just tweet at people. I'm like, hey, Beyonce, you want to
0: <laughs> I, I'm sure Tristan is honored that he's at the same level as Beyonce.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So tell me a little bit about yourself. You have your PhD in justice studies. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's an interdisciplinary degree. A lot of folks assume that it's like criminal justice or something, but it's more sociology with the social justice bend, you know? So, you know, our our focus there was really like social transformation, liberation. So a lot of the folks that I was in programs with, you know, we are the, we're a lot of the ones that are at the front of you know, social movements. I know whenever I was working on, on my PhD out there at Arizona State, Arizona Senate Bill 1070 had been passed and it was us, you know, it was us and our students. We said, well, this is an injustice. And, you know, we felt the call because of our training to do something about it. So a lot, like even with Black Lives Matter, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the folks that went through the program there, they're working with the, the organizers and founders of Black Lives Matter. So it's, um, and so I just, I've taken it into gaming spaces and looking at the injustices that are there, and, you know, trying to develop and, and mobilize folks to do some activism using gaming and gaming technology. So that's that's kind of like my my take on it. You know, because I'm a huge gamer, and so and I, I found that that degree was really useful to allow me to do. Um, Some of those things to address the inequalities in, in the digital spaces, particularly.
0: When you get a degree in Jostal Studies, does that make you, by definition, a social justice warrior?
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Whatever. and we didn't have that, we would have loved that term, you know, if it was out, you know, when we were finishing our degree. But we embrace the term and absolutely we are social justice warriors. So after so it's Keshana Gray, Ph.D., comma, social justice warrior. Exactly, it's right there.
0: Those are the letters, not PhD, it's SJW.
1: That's right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, I've recently been doing uh, some reading on Reddit after my most recent guest on this show, and one comment that somebody made was that nobody self-identifies as an SJW. It's that it's a pejorative term used by the other side, but you're saying that we've sort of taken on that mantle and reclaimed it?
1: Absolutely. I'm big about taking back words, especially when people, as you said, they'll use words in a diminished diminished way you know, to, to diminish us and the work that we do. So we just took it back, you know, kind of like women who like appropriate the word bitch or, you know, black people who will take back the N word. It's, you know, social justice warrior. We will reclaim it and reclaim it and use it for our own purposes and needs. But, but yeah, but so as you see in, in, in the context, especially of like a Reddit context, you know, comment section kind of context, it's, they're saying something bad about us essentially. Yeah.
0: So this may be sort of an elementary question, but spell it out for me. You studied justice studies, and now you're working in the Comparative Media Studies department at MIT. What's the correlation between justice studies and media studies?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's really in the way that I frame it and I define it, right? So the media that I study, if you will, is video games and, you know, like social media spaces, especially when gamers venture out into Twitter and venture into Twitch and venture venture into YouTube. So it's kind of like this comparative media, kind of transmedia kind of approach that, you know, Henry Jenkins, you know, and folks like that kind of talk about. But it's still with that social justice lens. It's still examining the inequalities within the space. It's examining the power structures that are impacting or preventing, you know, full inclusion or full use of the space. So it's like I've blended, you know, and I'm, I am I consider myself very much an interdisciplinary scholar. So I've kind of blended these different fields and these different disciplines to, to really get at, at the heart of what's happening. So like, for instance, you know, I had to also incorporate a focus on cultural studies, you know, cultural studies, houses, um feminist thought feminist practice critical race thought queer theory um so it was necessary especially for me to adopt those lenses so i could make sense of what marginalized folks what their experiences are in in these spaces so so a person who may identify as a trans woman you know gets gets trolled online so it's necessary for me to understand the complete context of the history of that identity of historically what has happened and and how that has like tracked to, to contemporary times. And it's also necessary for me to have, um, the necessary training in technology and looking at you know the history of technology you know um who are the users and the producers and the curators of these technologies because and you know technology is not neutral you know it's it's um, made with the with with the um the, the the ideology of of its creator and whatever their ideologies are you know that that impacts things so um and of course you know the social justice lens is there you know so i I found it. Limiting. So, for instance, I I found like criminology was limiting, you know, because we just kind of explored and studied phenomenon. I'm like, um, sociology was limiting because it just kind of looked and observed people. Right. And the communication studies was also limiting, too, you know, because it just kind of explored, you know, what the communication practices are. But I wanted to do something. I wanted to change spaces. I wanted to improve people's lives. I wanted to better their conditions. Right. So I couldn't just root myself just in those practices. Now, now we're seeing some changes, if you will. Like, for instance, like criminology is doing a lot better to be responsive. You know, to to the calls that let the folks who are within like Black Lives Matter and, um you know, different different social movements like that to be be responsive as opposed to just talking about, oh, yeah, police brutality is bad. Well, can we do something about it? You know? And so that's why I found that program there at Arizona State University to be th- the thing that I needed to give me the frameworks and the context to understand The social movements to understand the the limitations of legislation, to understand you know all those kinds of things that we so we could actually move towards like like progressive ends so we can improve people's realities and lived experiences and conditions and so I'm not diminishing or devaluing you know any of those those fields or disciplines you know I'm not not doing that at all but whenever I think about like sociology in particular sociology has been exploring poverty since forever. I'm like, people are still in poverty. So I'm like, are you just studying it to pad your CVs and to pad your resumes and to get tenure and to get full professor? I'm like, but these people who you studied, you know, in your dissertation, they lived and died in poverty. You know, you didn't improve their lives. And I can't my my soul won't allow me to just go into a space exploit a people and not do anything about their situation an example that I have like for instance I was part of a research team and we went into Ferguson right so I collected a lot of data while I was there but I'm like you know I get to leave I don't have to stay there and be subjected to the daily violence of, of policing of the the people who they've elected and put into office who don't care about their lives so I didn't feel right publishing that stuff and improving my own condition in my in all my privilege i didn't feel right doing that knowing that they still i didn't change the space i didn't improve the conditions you know so uh, it was really important for me to to maintain contacts and to continue to write people and write legislators and you know to flood inboxes to make sure that that these people's concerns stayed on their radar you know and that's still like an ongoing process you know and i think i think that was one of the things that was so defeating when i realized that you know change Change is is slow, you know, but we have to stay the course. So I, 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 I didn't feel right. I don't feel right. Just exploiting these communities just for my own gain. So if I don't get tenure, I just don't get tenure. Uh, But I'm, I can't, and to, to this day, I still have yet to publish, you know, a lot of that stuff that we collected, you know, after, after the, the killing of Mike Brown, you know, so so that's why I think it's necessary. And I wish we would incorporate a lot of this more social justice perspective into a lot of these traditional disciplines, because we we need something. We we are. we. It, it's sad. And again, I know I'm thinking about these first one hundred and what, five days right now. I feel like we're losing, you know. And so but I think it's important that folks like me, you know, I'm equipped with the tools to be able to help people maintain that hope, maintain, you know, kind of kind of examine You know, how we can how we can make some changes and what we could still do so we don't just succumb to the things that that are happening. So that's why I think that 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 program was so important. And I wish that we would adopt a more interdisciplinary approach so we can say, okay, so when shit's hitting the fan, what can we do? We don't just have to roll over and give up. You know, we, we can do something about it. I'm sorry I ranted a little bit. My bad, but it was necessary for me to provide that, that entire context.
0: You're obviously very passionate about this, and you'd have to be to go all the way to get a PhD.
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: <right>? <laughs> you mentioned a lot of big issues. You mentioned Ferguson and poverty and things that have been plaguing this country for decades, if not centuries. You also mentioned the first 105 days of the current presidential administration, which I agree have been very, to put it lightly, discouraging. In light of all that, video games sometimes to me don't feel very important so why is it that you've chosen that medium to apply your social justice studies
1: i'm glad you asked so i am a lifelong gamer right and i first i got into gaming because i grew up in a rural area i grew up in in rural kentucky there was nothing to do right so our outlet was gaming it kept us out of trouble it kept us doing something right I also found as I got older and I, you know, learned about different people's reasoning for getting into gaming, you know, it was an outlet for them. You know, it, it I I had some friends that lived in um that lived in um some urban centers, you know, what what people would call an inner city, they used their their game like when they were frustrated, when something would happen, when they had no control about their reality or existence, or when, you know, friends would be shot and killed, you know, at the hands of of police, but also at the hands of other black men, you know? So they, they found that gaming was an outlet for them, for them to, to release their frustrations, you know, because they didn't have anything else and they didn't want to engage in like negative kinds of things. Right. So I found looking at people's reasons of why they game, it's that significant to me. Right. Um, Looking at it, you know, so flipping, you know, going away from like that kind of um, micro level um, uh, answer and looking at like the bigger, larger macro kind of issue, the sheer number of people who are in gaming communities surpasses and exceeds, you know, like, 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 for instance, people that like watch movies or people, you know, who like listen to music, it's the number one entertainment outlet in our country, right? And the fact that we still look at it as like a children's activity when the average age of a gamer is like, well, I think I think I saw the numbers from the Pew Research Center that said it was like 32. So these are adults. These are grown folks, you know, people like me who have been lifelong gamers who stayed there in that in that space for a reason. So that's also a significant reason to, to explore a space. Whenever I, I had told a colleague, I, I asked them about the number of people that that their area impacted, and they said, oh, it's about a community of about 200 people. I was like, you know what? I am in a community that has 60 million people, you know what I'm saying? So I had to tell them about the number of folks who are in these spaces, and we don't know anything about them. Academically speaking, we don't know much about these spaces, right? So, and I know my little small, the my the small aspect of, of gaming that I examine, of course, and there are other people that that have their small chunk. So, you know, Adrian. T. L. Taylor, you know, you've got different scholars that are doing different different things within gaming, but we still only know just a little bit about it. Um, So I think it's important that we realize, you know, how significant gaming um, is. I mean, they generate billions of dollars, you know, for these industries, and so we have to we have to recognize the impact that. They're having on culture and also how culture has impacted, you know, uh, gamers, game developers, you know, the different technologies that we use. Um, I think it's really significant that, that we explore. So I often I always get asked that question about, you know, why are you studying? It's just child's play. I'm like my participants, the people who are are narrating their stories for me. I'm like, these are adults. These are people that have full time jobs. They have families. Um, I'm like, they're not they're not children. So I think it's I I think people are just kind of adopting the myths associated with what they think gaming is. Um and so I think a lot of um I think Gamergate sadly, I mean lucky lucky for us and also bad for us. Gamergate kind of put um kind of put gaming like at the gave a national and international attention, but also that was like one of the first times that you know some of these big outlets we're reaching out to kind of say, well, what's happening within this space? It seems like some culture culture wars are happening and going on. Can you help us make sense of it? So I hated that it took something like Gamergate for people to realize, like, oh, there's some there's some real shit happening here. But I'm also glad because you know there have been folks like like me and those others that I've named that have been there, have been tracking it, watching it, knowing that it's just like a hotbed for something like that to take place. So I think I was um uh, it was, it was the right place at the right time, you know if if, 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 if you will. So I think that's kind of like the responses that I give to people whenever they say, you know, why why video game?
0: You said that you've been a lifelong gamer, but if I understood your appearance on PBS accurately, you said that there, you never really considered it an academic field of study for you. It was just a pastime, but there was some sort of a turning point, a shift during your academic career, during your studies where you realized this was something that you could devote yourself to. What was that turning point?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, again, I had just adopted this approach that, you know, gaming was just something to pass time, something you did in your free time, you know, like a hobby kind of thing. Right. And I never took it seriously. So even, you know, if, you know, I grew up with, you know, my, my brother had an Atari, you know, had Nintendo. We got Sega, you know, went through the PlayStations. And you know, it was whenever I was with my um um some of my friends introduced me to, to Xbox, which is one of the spaces that I primarily primarily use now but it was during graduate school. I had procrastinated. (laughs) I procrastinated finishing a project and I was running, we had to do ethnographies where we like observe like a space. Right. So I had talked to the professor at the time, Daniel Bernardi. Um, I had talked with him and, and asked him, I'm like, you know, what is, what is something that I could do, you know, that would allow me to get this project done and to do it well. And he said, well, think about, he said, well, when you go home, what is it that you do? I said, well, I'll go home and I, I play video games. He said, "Well, do that." I was like, "Do that?" I, and to me, I was like, "I was like, he's joking right now." I was like, "I procrastinated," and he's trolling me right now. But no, he was seriously. He was he was serious. He said, "Go and just like examine the space and the culture of the the game that you play." At the time, it was I was playing a lot of um, Halo. I was playing Gears of War, and I was playing like Call of Duty, right? And so whenever I, I looked, and I I focused all my attention really on on the the content within the game. And I was like, I was like, well, I'm bored with it. It's just like military shooters. I was like, there's nothing really there, like shooting zombies or just, you know, shooting these, you know, animate, you know, kind of like soldiers. Like, so, but he said, "Well, well, you're talking to people, right? And I was like, yeah. He said, well, what's that like? I was like, oh my gosh, I get called nigger all day. I get called bitch all day. He said, right about that. I was like, oh, okay. And so when I sat down, you know, I wanted to go and find the literature, find the research that had been done. And I couldn't find anything, Right. And I was like, and, and, and to me at that time, of course I didn't, um, I, I just figured that if it didn't exist, I would need to change my project. But he said, if the literature doesn't exist, you create it. And so that's how I, that's how I got into it. You know, I just documented my experiences I documented the experiences and, and, and captured the narratives of, of people like me, of the other, the women who were in the spaces that allowed me to capture, you know, what was happening to them in an academic way. And that's how I got my dissertation, you know, and that's how I've, 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 you know, had this, had this productive, really awesome, successful research agenda Um, Because a lot of the space, um, a lot of it wasn't captured. And now, you know, you've got programs that are looking for students and looking for scholars to to um, document, you know, this kind of stuff. And so I was like it was like the right right place at the at the right time. Um, But it wasn't really until graduate school that I realized that, you know, applying this cultural examination of gaming spaces, of digital spaces really was was something that that we needed.
0: You talked about how there are a lot of programs that exist now that weren't there 10, 15 years ago. One of those programs is one that you founded, which is the Critical Gaming Lab at Eastern Kentucky University. Can you tell us what that is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the Critical Gaming Lab is a space that I created first for collaboration to bring in these different folks who were all, you know, at different places and different programs, you know, cause as I said, you know, it's these, we're, we're mostly in, in, um, a lot of these programs are rising up, but for the most part, a lot of us are, are in departments like English, we're in communication, we're in media studies, we're in cultural studies, we're in sociology. Um, and so now you've got like programs like digital sociology, but, but really at that time, the space was just meant to bring in these different folks who were doing this work so we could, um, support each other, you know, that, that was the biggest thing, but also not only support each other's work, but support rising scholars that were coming up, support students that were coming up, you know, so that was like one of the, the primary things that I wanted to do with the space, but it also served more than that, you know, it also served you know, as, as an extension of the classroom, right? So it was important for me to, at the, the program that I was in at Eastern Kentucky University, it was more, it was a criminal justice program. So I was, we were um, educating future um, police officers, you know, um, future um, border patrol agents, future Homeland Security officers. So I used the the gaming space. I used the critical gaming lab as a way to kind of apply an ethical lens to the things that they were going to be doing when they went out into the field. So games allowed me to pose moral dilemmas. So for instance, a game that I would have them play to, um, uh, to talk about like immigration issues was migrant trail. Migrant trail is a game that would allow you to either be a border patrol agent or to be a border crosser, right? Um, to be a, um, an individual seeking work, to be a mother who's pregnant and is trying to find, you know, trying to better her life, you know? So um, I made them play, you know, from, from both perspectives and both lenses and to really think about, are you just doing a job? what does this mean for like, like humanity? What is, what is, what's like the social justice lens, you know? So it, the, the space allowed me to to really challenge, challenge and push them further in a way that was, that was easier to do. So let's say um traditionally, I would just find, you know, an article that talked about like uh, racialized immigration policy and they would read it and they would mostly dismiss it. Right. But putting them in the space as the doer of those policies as executing, you know, these, this, this racial profiling, you know, that kind of, they kind of changed their perspective a little bit, you know, at least they thought, you know, they, they thought about it a bit further and especially being a black woman, it's hard to teach a lot of topics. And most of my students were white men. So it's hard to, to get across a lot of points, you know, without them saying that, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm engaging in reverse racism or I hate men, you know, or something like that. So the media, the gaming media, you know, the different kind of technology would allow me to kind of deflect some of the attention away from me in my body and and for them to to kind of explore it from their own personal lenses and perspective. So that was one of the most important things that I think the critical gaming lab allowed me to do. And it was also used as as a research space It allowed me to to interview students to, um, you know, students will play a game and, you know, I would I would administer like surveys to them so they could kind of like a pre-test post-test thing about, you know, what they're seeing on their screen. If they actually think that, you know, the, the depictions or the representations of women or people in color and Grand Theft Auto, for instance, um, is problematic and why or how they change their mindset at the end of the semester, for instance. So it allowed me to do a lot of things within that space. And in in the future, I'm actually... um I've actually um, I'm not returning to Eastern Kentucky University at the end of my um, my visiting um, position here at MIT. I'm actually I've taken a position at, back at Arizona State University in, uh, in the social technologies program. It's in the School of Behavioral Sciences. So and that's also I'm going to revive, you know, the gaming lab out there and, you know, just just further, you know, a lot of the things that that I started at the gaming lab at EKU.
0: Oh, congratulations on your new position! That's very exciting.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate that.
0: So, in the year between leaving EKU and arriving at ASU, you are spending this one year at MIT here in New England. What are you doing here that's different from those other two institutions?
1: Oh goodness! Um, so at EKU, it's very much—it's it, a teaching institution, right? It's very much like a, a teaching-focused place. So that m i t has really given me a chance to think about my research to think about you know my research agenda, and they've given me like the support really that that I hadn't had before to really think about what's my mark gonna be within these different fields that i'm 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 a part of right so I was assigned a mentor you know t l Taylor you know's been my mentor since I've been here, and she's just been amazing, you know um even aside from from just the professional you know academic kind of thing you know like like personally like we went skating the other day you know so it's Aww. really been so enriching and so fulfilling and I, I've I've appreciated that. And also since I've been here in the Cambridge area, you know, I've got um I've um I'm a fellow at the Berkman Klein um center at Harvard and the networks and the connections that I've made there has just been amazing. Like these are some of uh, some brilliant minds and they just had me thinking about like a lot of things differently. Like for instance, like net neutrality. I didn't I had no idea what that was and what that actually meant, you know, really until, you know, I learned a lot more from those those folks in that space. I've also, you know, I've got like a, kind of like a faculty, um, researcher affiliation. I, um, at, at Microsoft Research with the social media collective, you know, so I've been working closely with folks like Mary Gray, Nancy Bame, Tarleton Gillespie. So it's just been such an enriching, academically enriching experience. And also I've got my kids with me too. You know, my kids are four and six. And so, you know, they spent this year in this amazing city, you know, Boston right across the river, you know, so it's just really been such an amazing experience that I really can. I, I'm, I'm glad I did. It was tough. It was tough making the transition from rural Kentucky to a city like this, you know. And then I'm thinking about like the sticker shock. Yeah, I've never paid so much in rent in my life, you know?
0: Oh my God, I hear you.
1: <laughs> so that was, you know, so there were some there were some drawbacks too. And again, I've never been so cold in my life, you know, and everybody's saying that this winter was mild. I was cold as shit. <laughs> oh
0: it wasn't bad, believe me.
1: <gasps> oh my kid, that's what everybody's doing. It gets me. worse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to experience worse. That's what everybody keeps telling me. Everyone told me that this was a mild winter, but I was cold. And that may have led to my, my, my jump to the desert. I'm like, you know, I don't want to be cold ever again. Going from Let's one extreme to
0: the, the other. Day.
1: Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But it's been an amazing year. And I also had the opportunity to teach a class while I was here at MIT, I taught in the fall, I taught a gender and media course. And right now I'm currently teaching, well, it's almost over. We've got maybe like a couple weeks left. I'm currently teaching a marginalized masculinities class. And these students have just been amazing. I didn't really know what to expect. So the students that I've been teaching, they aren't aren't majors. They aren't like in comparative media studies or women and gender studies, which I'm also affiliated with. So these students are like, engineers and they're in aerospace, aeronautical, like it was just crazy, like hearing about, you know, what these students experiences has been, but they were so, and I I was, I I was nervous at first because I didn't think that they would engage in, you know, this cultural kind of like engagement with like technology. Right. But they were ready. They read everything they wanted to learn. And it's just been an an amazing experience. Mm. I remember somebody was telling me that, that I lucked out getting, um, they were telling me the difference between like MIT and Harvard students. They said MIT students, like, even though, you know, the the students are from like the most, um, privileged, you know, um, um, backgrounds. Right. But they said the MIT students were like the worker students, like they'll work harder and they, they want to do stuff, you know, because it's like a maker doer kind of school. So, and I noticed that I saw that worker kind of mentality in them and they worked hard in these classes. These are, these have been, um, they were amazing students and i'm really fortunate to have had a chance to um to interact and to learn from them also you know just as much as you know i imparted to them you know i learned a lot from them as well
0: i spent 3 years working at mit and just being in that environment in that academic environment with so many geniuses both at my peer level and at the student level was just remarkable just you absorb so much just through osmosis
1: Exactly, exactly. Couldn't agree with you more, Ken.
0: Absolutely. In fact, one of my first guests on the show, way back in episode number nine, was Dwayne DeFore, who works at MIT Medical in the violence prevention and response team, and he was talking about toxic masculinity, and here you are teaching about marginalized masculinity. It seems like a very urgent topic for us to be addressing.
1: That's right. Absolutely. And that's what I, I did. So I'm, I, um, I'm selfish. I'll say I'm selfish in the things that I teach, because a lot of times what I, what I especially when I have the option to teach, I'll teach things that are related to like the research that I'm doing. So there were some chapters that I was exploring for my next book project that really had to explore this identity of marginalized masculinities. Because a lot of times when we talk about masculinity, you know, we're exploring it from from the lens in what you just mentioned, like toxic masculinity, like the most privileged among us that aren't, aren't checking their privilege and aren't you know, aren't self-reflective and aren't aware. But whenever you assign like this marginalized identity, what does that masculinity then look like? You know, so where, what does queer masculinity look like? What does trans masculinity look like? What does female masculinity look like? What is black masculine, Asian masculinity, um, Latinx masculinity? What is also, I think it was important that we really interrogate whenever you have this intersecting of identities, does it still follow in the same same um like path as traditional toxic masculinity or is it different so those have been some of the things that we've explored in this class and it's been um really 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 amazing um and it's also you know giving me great stuff you know for the next um project in the books book projects that that um that i've been working on
0: that's right you are the author of race gender and deviance in xbox live which came out about three years ago and now you're working on another title
1: Yes, I am. I am. So that book project, oh, it it was it was amazing. It was my I was nervous. I was scared because I had never done a book before, but the opportunity presented itself and it 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 was it was successful, you know? Um and it was a short format book. So this next next project that I'm working on is gonna be a more like traditional um, you know, um book right now. So I've been, you know, shopping some different different publishers for that book, but the title right now it's on being black and dot 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 the journey to intersectionality in digital gaming culture. So I think one of the things that um you know there's a push for for embracing intersectionality, right? For embracing, you know, the multiple contexts and the the complexities of all of our identities, our our gender, our race, our sex, our nationality, our religion, right? But it's important to also recognize that it's a journey to identify all those aspects of who we are but also to embrace them you know? So, so for instance, like a lot of, a lot of people may go through life and, and adopt and realize that, you know, their gendered identity influences their outcomes or that their race, like being black or, or being um, Mexican, you know, is like the, the biggest predictor of their outcomes, you know, and it takes some time to realize that like, oh, well, I am, am a, I'm also a man. So, you know, I have some privilege in some context or I'm a woman. So I have even more diminished opportunities or I'm, I'm able, able-bodied. So I have some privileges here. So it takes some time really to navigate and figure that out. So, What I've in this next book project, I um it's it's almost been like a ten year ten years since I've I've started with really this ethnography in Xbox Live, but exploring these different communities and really seeing how like that the primary identity um in, in the communities um um for the focus of this book has been black. You know, the black identity has been the most significant identity. There was this one clan, if you will, this one one like group that I follow. And they've they've talked about how diverse the blackness is within their community. Um, So over time, they realized that um, some of them were there were some um, some some dudes that were from Nigeria. There were some that were from Brazil. There were some that were from Puerto Rico. There were some that were from, you know, the different places in the United States. And they realized, you know, they had there were some 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 tense moments in the space because they were debating black identity and how different black identity was. And so I feel like there was some moments where the, the brothers from the United States were saying that, um, you know, they were like the most oppressed. And, and so it was, it was interesting seeing like these, the, the, like the ebbs and flows of their, of, of navigating, you know, black identity. And there was like a moment, I think after it may have been after, after the death of, uh, I don't know if it was like John Crawford or Tamir Rice just a couple of years ago, where they um, somebody had made the comment and said they made the comment the ghetto looks the same everywhere, right? You know, so they were talking about the things that were happening in these different um, different urban centers, different ghettoized places, if you will, across the world, and realizing that they had more in common than they had different. So in looking at the um, the gaming technology, Xbox Live kind of afforded them this ability to to develop this collective black identity. Right. And also, you know, thinking about the the, the group work, the identity group work that was um, that was at play to help them navigate, you know, this this reality with and against each other at times. So, you know, this next book project is going to explore, you know, that topic and other topics, you know, so it's um it's really it, it's been fun. And I, I didn't realize how much stuff I had until I, whenever I moved, I was moving, um, I, whenever I was moving from Kentucky up here to the, to the Cambridge area, I came across, you know, the, um, the, the, um, the, the interviews and I had started transcribing a lot of the stuff. And I realized I've got a lot of stuff here because I thought I was really done with this project. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, the future research agenda and the stuff that I'm going to be working on. I'm like, I've still got a lot of stories, to tell from this data that I've, I've been collecting over time. And of course, you know, lucky for me, you know, I, I have to do that for academia to get tenure and stuff. But it's also a necessary and important story, I think, that to tell, especially in this moment right now. Yeah. So that, that's where I'm at with that book project.
0: When can we expect it to hit the bookshelves?
1: Oh, goodness. So I am hopefully I think I might have I don't I, I won't say the name of the publisher right now, but I've I've, I've had some good connections with with uh, an academic press. So if I can get a contract probably within a few weeks, um, you might see that book probably within within a, a year and a half. You know, maybe 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 holiday time next next winter, maybe. So let's let's aim for that. We'll aim winter winter 2018. That's that's when you're going to see it.
0: I'll look for it.
1: <laughs> All right. I put it out there, so I have to do it now, right?
0: <laughs> you're committed. <laughs> so that is a, a, something to look forward to in the realm of diversity. I want to look backward a little bit. Something you said at your MIT talk last month, and I apologize. I was a bad student. I didn't take notes, so correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong. I th- I think you said that video games of the 1990s, Actually showed more diversity than they have in the last ten to fifteen years. Is that correct?
1: So yeah. So whenever I was going back to try to, because um, again, my focus hasn't been on representations in games. It's just been since I've had this book project and some of the things that the the participants in my in these interviews have said. They um they talk a lot about how they're influenced by the images that they're seeing on the screen. And then whenever they do see themselves, so it's not in a console context, but it's very much like in this computer context. Like, so uh, there was a, um, I don't, oh goodness, and I knew, um, I wish I had that list right now, but there was a student that compiled a list of, um, black representations in particular in games, and the list was larger than I thought it was, it was gonna be. So they aren't, you know, they're mostly NPCs, right? A lot of them aren't playable characters, but the fact that they were there. Kind of diminishes this argument that a lot of people have that games aren't diverse um and so and although they're 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 not, I will say that they're they're not diverse, but we've been there, you know there have been black and brown characters that that have been there historically, so for instance, in like you know your 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 street fighter you know your final fantasy, like these kinds of games that have had had um people of color in them like we've kind of like ignored them, and it wasn't really until. Um, those representations got more stereotypical, if you will. Even know, Street Fighter is so problematic, but I'm thinking about like, um, like a game like Grand Theft Auto, where you know, like this conversation of like, what are we, what story are we telling about black masculinity? I think that people started looking a lot more and realized that, well, there aren't any black characters in the games. But now, yes, we can say that there are very few, but there were some games I'm thinking about, uh, Beyond Good and Evil, There was another game. Oh my gosh. I wish I had that. I'm trying to find that list right now, but I don't, I don't see it. But there were, there were examples of, um, there was a black man that he played like a voodoo kind of character. I'll send you that list. I don't know. Like whenever you upload the podcast, if you have like links and stuff, but I'll send you that. So people can like take a look and see about the, the presence of those black and brown characters that were there. And a lot of times they had like ambiguous identity, So I'm thinking about, like, for instance, like Jade, Beyond Good and Evil, you know, we're still arguing about, you know, is is she is she Asian? Is she is she Latina? Is she biracial? Is she African-American? You know, we're still fighting over that identity, but we're fighting over these identities because there aren't that many there aren't that many representations of us out there. You know, and that's I think that's the most unfortunate thing where, you know, you're you, you pit. You're pitting women of color against each other because they don't have that many representations, and they want to be represented, you know, so bad, you know. So I think it's um I think it's important that you know these uh, developers and designers realize that they have to have to listen to the the call for uh, diversifying content and representations in games and going beyond the stereotypes too.
0: So there have been times when we were more diverse, whether or not those representations were stereotypical or problematic, they, we had more of them, and then there was sort of a a whitening of the media in the 2000s or so. Yeah. Another change that has occurred, though, in representation, you said in your talk that violence against women in entertainment media, not just games, but entertainment media, is also on the rise. Is that true?
1: So I, there was, um, I remember reading some of um, the research that showed that the rise of the increase of violence against women in media is not reflected in the actual cases in um, Real world, if you will, quotes around real world. Right. So it's not on par. So, for instance, let's say if like um uh, if you look at like crime waves, um if there was violence against women, if it had increased like, you know, by 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 30 percent between the years of 2000 and 2005, um, if we saw that and um, if we saw the same kind of increase like in media, um then it might not be as concerning right so we would think that you know media is just re- uh representing what's happening in in the physical world but that's not happening so the violence against women is not increasing at the pace that we see it increasing um within in movies or in or in video games um so like the 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 representations i think i think they said it was like a, it increased 120% within within media during like like a span of like like two thousand to like two thousand five, and that just didn't match what the actual numbers were. Um, so you see media going above and beyond in its depiction of violence against women when that's not actually the case or the reality, right? But women are just used as like as 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 a um a mechanic, a function, um uh, a a story mode, something to pass the time in games, if you will. So they're they're used as things. Within video games for a male character to have something to do, right? And Anita Sarkeesian did a great job, you know, with her tropes versus women series highlighting and depicting that. Highlighting and depicting, you know, what what um the reality of violence, hypersexualized violence Against women is in in video games in particular, and she tracked that historically, and she tracked that beautifully um, so I think it was um I know something I, I had a recent article with some graduate students where we talked about these blurred lines, like the blurring of the boundaries um, and looking at symbolic violence uh, against women and I think you know kind of what what we what we saw and examined was that. Yes, violence against women exists in the real world and we see it permeating these digital spaces more and more. So whereas it's beyond just like, um, um, uh, for instance, Princess Peach getting abducted and kidnapped and held against her will, um, we're seeing it in the comment section where people who are making comments are being targeted. You know, we're seeing it. uh, You know, Anita Sarkeesian saw this real world violence against her that stemmed from from the digital world. Um, We're seeing cyber bullying. You know, we're seeing all these instances where there's like a um, things are occurring and happening in these digital contexts and they're translating into physical spaces. So that's where um, that's kind of what that that article, you know, is talking about and and discussing um, using women in gaming in particular.
0: Yeah, the amount of threats against people like Anita Sarkeesian, Zoe Quinn, it's completely reprehensible and inexcusable. And I agree that it stems from a, a lot of what we see in the gaming. But as we observed, though, it doesn't seem to be reflected in real-world violence against women. Wouldn't that be an argument that what happens in games is, is just games and has no bearing on people's behavior?
1: Ah, yeah, so some, some could you know, like make that argument. And I wouldn't even have done I wouldn't have wrote an article about that at all because I don't even want to feed into the fear that or the, the assumption that games cause violence. Right. So I'm not part of that camp. You know, my my argument has been and always will be that violence exists already in the world. Violence against women exists. And then you see like this replication of it within in these mediated contexts. I think it was necessary that that a lot of people, of course, just saw like something like Gamergate as like, oh, well, that's just happening like in a game not realizing that these games, because of the the, the convergent nature of games now where they're crossing into the real world, real, real lives of these folks. So you can be trolled in a game and then you're going to they're going to go to your Twitter account then they may make it to your Facebook account. And the danger of those is that people disclose a lot more personal information like on Facebook or on Twitter than they do inside Xbox Live in particular, or that they do inside um, League of Legends or whatever game that they're playing. So that's where the danger comes in at, um, because you're, you're crossing this boundary into, like, their, their Their family, their loved ones, people who you know their children um you know so and then you know people are getting docs and everything, so i think it's I think it's important that we realize what what this convergence is actually doing um it's it's making us more vulnerable because we do disclose more of who we are in like the, these other spaces. And I think, and although, you know, I didn't get trolled in a, in a way that those other folks did or in like, even in an academic sense, there was some, um, the folks who were part of like DIGRA, like Mia Consalvo, Adrian Shaw, she were you know, those folks, you know, they were getting trolled as well because they write about the phenomenon because we write about it. Um, so even, you know, it was going away from like, you know, not just like critics of games, but it was also going to like, you know, academics who, who have made our life's work? You know, we publish about some of these things as well, and then they're not even reading it. I remember I had an article, um, I my the little trolling that that I got. They were citing um uh, one of my articles, the asshole griefers, thinking that I was talking about white men. I was like, well, if you actually read the article, you will realize that the asshole griefers I was referring to is a clan of black women who make it a point to troll and to go after people. So they just assume that they are the center of our narratives. I'm like, it's not always about you. <laughs> um, so I thought, you know, that's, that's what was just so funny about, about that article that they were, they they would realize that, you know, I, I make no mention of them at all. I was looking at the trolling practices of, of black women in particular, but I just think it's, I think it's true. I, I want to, I, I know you've got some more, some more questions, but I just think that it's problematic that this this I hate to call it. At one point I had called it the 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 locker room, like this digital locker room, you know, where they think people like me were invaders and we're intruders into their space. So it's it's just this it's this notion that they feel that something is theirs and has always been theirs, and we're taking it away. So it's like this myth of scarcity where they where they they're going into like like fear mode, like survival mode, like they have to fight. Um, like to keep what what is theirs and what has been theirs without any recognition that we, we've we always been there. They just haven't acknowledged us. And, you know, social media is giving us more visibility so we can show to them that, hey, no, we've been doing exactly the same things. You just ignored us. We're just in your faces now. So I just think that it's it's. It's sad. But of course, you know, I'm not going to I know a lot of women had to, you know, uh, like uh, close down their their social media sites. They closed down their websites. Um, but fortunately, you know, I was lucky I didn't get trolled in that manner. But that also, you know, I had wrote down I just wrote like a few notes on a piece of paper and I said, you know, w- women of color, you know, once again, we're, we're invisible um, And I had made the comment. I was like, you know, I was like, I'm more of a threat to you because not only am I challenging your masculinity, I'm also challenging your whiteness. I'm challenging your heterosexuality. I'm challenging your Christianity, you know, so I'm challenging all this stuff, but they don't see me as a threat. You know, so I've been wanting to really like interrogate what does that actually mean? You know, because really white women were the targets uh, and they were they were the victims, really, you know, if you will, of, of Gamergate. So I've just been trying to think about what did that mean? You know, is it is it just more invisibility? You know, because women of color were mostly just on the periphery of, of, of all these things, whereas, you know, white women are center um, and, you know, white men are center. Um, so I just thought, you know, that's something that I wanted to, you know, kind of think about and talk about, like in the future at, at some point.
0: So there are a lot of issues with social justice in games whether it's representation or violence against women or just the behavior of people who engage in gaming. I have time for just one last question with you which is in last month's presentation you you used the Audrey Lord quotation, the masters tools will never dismantle the masters house. How does that apply to gaming and what is the solution?
1: Yeah, so um I the master's, master's tools will never dismantle the master's house was essentially a metaphor that Audre Lorde used that said that if it was something that was created by at the hands of our oppressor, it will not be able to be enough to dismantle the oppression, the inequalities, the systematic and the individual levels of um, um of discrimination that we're subject to, right? So, in looking at the gaming context, you know, I was uh, moved by the pouring, the outpouring of, of activism and mobilization, especially after Gamergate. But then I started to think about I'm like, how powerful are the tools that that were given to us by the people? You know, so, for instance, you know, I'm 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 lumping, you know, the privileged identity of white male identity um, into a box. So I'm like, you know, these are gaming. These are technologies that were created by them for them. Can we really appropriate them? For our own means and our own purposes. Right. Um, So I think that that's that's this this idea that I'm I'm really I'm interrogating and I'm critically challenging if I would be able to use gaming spaces and gaming technology to kind of transform the narrative so that it's more liberating for everybody that, that that's within the space. I don't know if it's possible, you know, and, and that's also one of the things, you know, looking outside of gaming technology that people think about, um, you know, the, the tool of marching and the tool of protesting. Those are constitutionally protected kinds of things that were given to us, if if you will, by the oppressor. So how, how useful are they going to be to dismantle that oppression, to dismantle police brutality, to dismantle, you know, the systematic and institutional inequalities um, that are keeping, you know, people of color in particular, you know, bound and enslaved to the system of of mass incarceration. Um, So these are just some of the things that I challenge and and, and, and interrogate. Like, um, do we have to develop new tools do we have to take it upon ourselves to just divest altogether from those kinds of tools? I don't know. So, and again, those are things, those, that's one of the the quotes that I I close with. So I I think about, so I see the utility of a lot of groups who use these things like the the gaming for good folks, the, um, the people who, who are, you know, using the gaming technologies to bring awareness um, to a lot of issues um, that are plaguing us right now. Um, How far are they going to go? If they're not in the hands of the masses, are they really going to be that useful and beneficial to us? I don't, I don't know. I don't know.
0: Wow, it's a <laughs> I almost feel like I should have opened with that question.
1: <laughs> oh, I know right, and I'm sorry to end on like doom and gloom, you know, but I, I I really don't know. I don't have an answer. Um so I'm still working I'm working through it. I'm interrogating it. I'm I'm seeing I think it's useful for empowerment, and I think empowerment is is necessary. It's a necessary step, you know, um towards change and liberation. But it's not the only thing, you know, we need we need more. And that what that more is, I don't know right now.
0: Well, I'm hopeful that a lot of the games we've been discussing come from mainstream AAA studios. We see a lot more diversity in the indie space. And I'm hoping that perhaps the AAA studios will take their cue from that.
1: Exactly. Indie, the indie spaces are going to save the world. They're going to save us. Because they're doing some great, they're doing the dopest things right now. And I wish they had the budgets, I wish they had the the bodies, I wish they had the attention, um, because they are really doing some great things. And a lot of the stuff that I do, like in the classroom and stuff, I get it's it's the indie spaces. It's not the AAA games that that I that I center and feature. It's those amazing games that people have have thought about, you know, character development, the narration. They've actually thought about, you know, the, what the product that they're delivering to us, as opposed to just making money at the end of the day. So yeah, the indie scene is doing some of the dopest things.
0: So obviously anybody who wants to learn more about what you're studying and teaching should sign up for your classes. But short of that, where can they find you online?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You can follow me on Twitter um, at Kishonna Gray, K-I-S-H-O-N-N-A-G-R-A-Y. I'm also on other other social media. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I've got a website where I try to Keep the most updated information about what I'm doing and what we're doing in the lab there. So you can follow me at gray.com and also follow some of the stuff that we're doing in the lab. You know, it's 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 transforming from the Critical Gaming Lab to the Equity in Gaming Lab. So you can follow www. Gaming.com.
0: Excellent. And links to all the resources mentioned in this episode can be found at polygamer.net or also at plyg.me slash gray. That's G-R-A-Y. Kishona, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Ken. You take care. I appreciate you. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net.